Yama, and welcome to Beyond the Gap podcast. I'm your host, Phil Usher, proud Wiradjuri man from central New South Wales. In this series, we talk with both Indigenous and non-Indigenous thought leaders on what it takes to truly close the gap. Conversations on Beyond the Gap aim to investigate Indigenous Australians' relationship with corporate Australia, the influences and constructs that should be considered for best practice reconciliation action plans, and what is the best path forward to engage and empower our country's First Nations people. Today I'm talking with Dr. Simon Longstaff. Dr. Longstaff has a PhD in philosophy from Cambridge University and is Executive Director of the Ethics Centre, working across business, government and society. Simon is proud of his kinship ties to members of the Aboriginal community in the Northern Territory. In this episode, we explore why you don't have to be Aboriginal to have significant impact on the Indigenous community, the essential next step for all Australians in our journey towards reconciliation, and how you can start to effectively engage with the Aboriginal community. This is a thought-provoking episode that you'll think about long after you finish listening. Hi, Simon. Thanks for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Now, the intro that we get all our guests to do is a blackfella intro. So if you can tell us where you're from and who your mob is. It's a bit of a complicated answer to that. I'm a cocktail. So I was born down in, uh, in Melbourne. My father had been born in England, although his father was Australian, but his dad was over there for the war. Uh, my mum was from Sydney. And then uh, I moved around a little bit, so I came up and eventually sort of home base was Sydney, but mum died when I was seven, so I spent quite a bit of time in outback Queensland, up around John Derry and Surratt and then Tambo. And then I went up to Groot Island in the Gulf of Carpentaria, and so I've got kinship ties with the Anandliakwa mob. So in terms of my connections there, they took me in when I was a, a very green teenager who needed a bit of looking after. And those ties persist to these days, so I'm back and forwards up to the island, and now I'm a trustee of the equivalent of their future fund. So, yeah, I got painted up last year, and a few things like that have happened in me over the time, which have given me some insight into the, that mob. And they've been—they treat me a bit like I think they might treat a toddler. So, so I've got, so I've got all these mixtures. I've got these kind of things that flow through me, different t- connections, ties, and things like that, which is not a very complete answer, I hope. No, I think it's good insight because I think there's some misunderstanding that you need to be Indigenous to do well with this kind of servicing or, or Aboriginal affairs. And I know it's certainly a preference in some cases to have Aboriginal people there, but you've just highlighted something really interesting that you can still have this impact and still be really accepted by the community uh, without having you know Aboriginal cultural heritage. I just think that's a really good point to, to start on. I think it's... Um... Most Australians who've not had much to do with First Nations people just don't know how generous they are. And I still feel that there's a kind of, I don't know whether you find it when you walk into community, but it's almost like this X-ray vision that goes through you. People know who you are, and I don't just mean your outer identity. They know something about who you are, your character and your stance to life, almost with a single glance. And I I, I didn't go back to, to Groot for something like 17 years from when I left. Um, I'd gone old, I went off to the world, went to Cambridge, came back. And yet the moment I walked back into that community, they knew exactly who I was, they knew who my connections were with. 
I still have to go and participate in sorry business for various people who are close to me. And you almost pinch yourself sometimes because, you know, genetically, if, any, if you look, there's not a single scrap of anything that would connect me to Indigenous people at all. Yet when I'm there with them, they absolutely insist that those kinship ties are real. And for the purposes of those, I need to both discharge my obligations and am recognised as doing so. So that's an incredible act of generosity, particularly when you think about the history of colonisation that I just wish every Australian knew about. That's incredible. I had no idea of that uh, connection before we sort of jumped on. I knew a little bit, obviously, through the bio, but that's incredibly insightful. And you touched on a little bit just then where you went to Cambridge. So what's that kind of space filling between sort of outback Australia to Cambridge to where you are now? Yeah, not too many people end up with a PhD in philosophy from Cambridge after they've started work as a cleaner, because that's what I was. I was I used to clean toilets, empty bins. I mean, I don't know if you've ever come across a bin with old prawns and milkshakes sitting in the during the wet season. It's a pretty lethal thing. No, it's a kind of an interesting journey. I came back from Groot. I carried with me a whole lot of different insights, which I didn't even realise even until a few years ago just how deep it was, even about how to see the world through patterns rather than individual objects and things like that. And I thought when I was coming back that it would be great to be a lawyer. And then I started to study law and realised that in its practice, it didn't have as much to do with justice, at least, you know, the average day stuff as I really wanted it to do. And then, you know, accidents. Like, I, anyway, I ended up in Tasmania, right at the other end of the country. And I did a degree in education. I taught for a few years. And then I was just lucked out and got to go to Cambridge. And you know, it turned out that I'm reasonably good at what I I was doing over there in, in the area of philosophy. And it just unfolded from there. So I got back to Australia and I thought, you know, it's quite an interesting background, but it was all sort of in different parts. And then I was on the radio with a guy called Terry Lane at 3AW in Victoria. And I got a phone call from somewhere, um, from this guy who'd been up on group and said, oh, you know, is that the Simon Longstaff who used to be on Grid Island? So, yeah, he said, oh, you need to get in touch with that mob. They still talk about you after all these years. So I did, and that unbroken connection was still there. That's incredible. They, they saw That's you like a circuit. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, funny how that works out. So, so what are you up to these days? Well, for the last 30 years, I've been my job's been running a place called the Ethics Centre. It, it used to be called the St James Ethics Centre because it was established at the end of the 1980s out of an Anglican parish in Sydney. But we realised after a while that, there are quite a few people who were not at all religious and they were confused by the name. So it's just called the Ethics Centre. And it's a unique organisation. Uh, it, it provides help to individuals and organisations to deal with every kind of ethical question under the sun. So some of them are end-of-life ones, you know, the life and death ones. Some of them are to do with sports. So when there was that incident in South Africa with the ball tampering, you know, we got called in to look at the culture of elite cricket or you might be dealing with politics or almost anything. And so the organisation, it's not not a moral policeman or anything. It's just there to help people make better decisions. And it starts with a simple idea, which I think most people sort of get, that if you make better decisions, you get a better world. So how do you provide people with the support to be able to do that? So that's what I've been doing now for, for 30 years. Actually, it was 30 years just back in uh, July of this year. That's a long commitment to ethics and there's some of the most fascinating questions you, you see, some of those ethical ones, and just how the, the brain processes them. You mentioned working in organisations. 
getting them to make better decisions from the Indigenous engagement point of view and, you know, when we're building out reconciliation action plans, how do organisations go around putting that into their, their strategic plans from, I guess, an ethical point of view, not just the this will give us a competitive advantage and help us secure more government funds so we can increase the bottom line. How, how do you build that more ethically into, into an organisation? Well, you almost answered it yourself. It's got to do with sincerity and legitimacy. So I, I started off with uh, Mick Dodson more than a decade ago on the Indigenous governance road, which meant we've been in and out of heaps of really fantastic Indigenous organisations to look at the way in which they go about governing themselves. And I mean, even people like, I mean, Jennifer Westacott, who runs the Business Council of Australia, still upholds Purple House in Alice Springs as an ideal of how to run an organisation well. And she's got that mob down to talk to the, you know, the good and the great from the 100 biggest corporations in Australia about how to do governance. So the first thing to understand is when you're looking at reconciliation action plans is don't think that you necessarily know all the things about how to do it by yourself. You really need to be prepared to consult with the community, that is the First Nations community. You need to think about issues around legitimacy. That's cultural legitimacy through your plan with people in various mobs that you're going to be uh, working with. But also you've got to think about what your motivation is. And I, I was talking about that X-ray vision that people have where they can tell who you are, which goes to your motivation, your character and things like that. I think a lot of people approach reconciliation as a thing they, almost like a box they have to tick. Of course, yeah, why are you doing it? Oh, well, everybody's doing it or it's the flavour of the day. It just doesn't work if you do it on that basis. You've got to find something that you understand about the point of reconciliation and, and, and healing a nation which is still carrying the scars from colonisation. And if you're doing it for the right reason, then I think people will accept that you might make mistakes. I mean, even if you consult widely, you can sometimes stuff it up. But if you're doing it for the right reasons, with that right intent, People will make allowances for you and they'll they'll help you along the way to get better and better and better at it. So those are the key ingredients I think you've got to look at from an organisation. And that takes a fair bit of courage because you've got to be prepared to look in the mirror and ask, well, do we really mean this? Are, are we really wanting to have a relationship rather than just get a few boxes ticked or you know, points with people for having delivered something good on the surface rather than necessarily being really deep? That's a good point because... I hear a lot about reconciliation action plans being cliche, tokenistic, something that sits on the shelf. And a lot of them, not necessarily the senior leaders, but the ones that sit underneath that, and they're worried about it being that kind of document. But it's kind of up to that individual to have that conversation and look in the mirror and up to them to make sure that it it isn't that cliche document, which I think's yeah, just a really fascinating point. Well, I think, I think you can tell when you go in. If people are sort of bringing it, to mind. So if there's a kind of, a, if it's in your thinking when you're asking, well, what should we do about this or that thing? And it doesn't necessarily have to be written in the plan, like step one, step two. But if the orientation towards reconciliation makes you wonder about what could you learn from people in the First Nations? How would their interests be better advanced as a matter of justice or just better relationships? It's that spirit that can infuse an organisation which starts to move through people that I think brings it all to life in a way that even the most detailed plan will not do. And I would encourage people 
it's not to be sloppy about planning. I mean, you've got to have targets and all the rest, but make sure that this other stuff doesn't get set aside as an optional extra. Shifting the focus a little bit and looking at closing the gap and those, uh, I think, 16 dot points they are now and how they've probably missed the mark to kind of be polite over the last sort of 10 years. What What's your thoughts around, you know, why that's kind of hasn't gone to plan given that you've worked in obviously that rural remote kind of setting and, and I assume there's some connections and your experience in a more urban setting as well. What What's sort of the, the downfall that you've seen? I could be wrong, but... I think the first problem is we haven't come to terms with the truth. And as soon as you start talking about truth, people start to think about truth and reconciliation commissions or finding out the truth so that you can allocate blame or praise or something like that. I think we've got to come to it in a slightly different way. So this might seem like a subtle distinction, but rather than having a truth commission, I think we have to have a commission for the truth. In other words, the truth is the thing that's got to be served. And it's got to be about hearing people's yarns about what happened without necessarily rushing to judgment and without saying that one person's story has to count more as another. I think if we really sat down and listened to each other, we would hear a, a tapestry. We'd hear a tapestry of some pretty dark and uncomfortable threads woven through it and we'll hear some threads that are really bright and uplift the spirits because it's a it's a complicated picture and the most important thing that people need I think right across the board is to be able to just listen and hear the authentic experience of people from different communities from first nations from the colonists from those who came later and just listen and sit with it because I think unless we can get to the truth including you know the good and the bad of it, I'm not sure whether the other stuff is going to be accomplished because there'll be too many unspoken bits that get in the way that make people want to be defensive or aggressive or right across the board. So it's possibly a naive view to think this, but I would rather hope that society would do that. And then a second point I'd just make about it is I would want the majority of Australians to recognise that spirit of generosity that I spoke to um, before. See, there's, there's quite a lot of people, particularly elders in various communities, who hold the stories of this country in trust for everybody who lives in this land, and they genuinely want to share it and are kind of a bit mystified as to why this hand that's been extended so that every single Australian can be part of the remarkable story of this country, which dates back so many, many, many tens, you know, unbelievable thousands of generations into the past. And there's no one trying to lock one group out or another. They're just saying, come on, you know, let's just recognise and build from there. So those are the two things I think might be the key to it. I think that's a really good point, the listen and sit with it. But the other part you mentioned about people getting defensive. Now, I've delivered countless numbers of culture awareness training sessions and most of them are good but it's always this feel of of guilt or almost shame of, of the recipient i guess is there any way that people can sort of listen and and remove that when they're listening to these conversations without feeling like they've you know that the blame's being put on them that this is just a, a truth-telling conversation and not so much a blame game look it's really hard it, i mean Partly it depends on the people who are doing it. 
making very clear that that's what they're they're doing, and and that it does put part of the burden back on those who've carried the greatest burden already. But I actually think the First Nations communities are up for that. They know that the healing they're doing is not just for them; it's for everybody. And so they got. I mean, look at they've got incredibly broad shoulders, which have been in evidence for what two hundred plus years. But I also think that for those who are listening to uncomfortable stories, if it triggers something in them, they shouldn't shut that down. I mean, it's okay to feel uncomfortable. I mean, life isn't supposed to be one in which every single waking moment is one of joy and free from challenge and things like that. And I think if we give people space to say, well, you know, it's all right to feel bad and to to wonder at all of the opportunities that have been lost and how stupid the settlers or colonists were when they came not to pay attention. I mean, I just think the lights went on for so many people on the east coast of Australia and Tassie and places when those terrible fires were burning just a couple of years ago when the local mob managed that for for tens of thousands of years. I mean, they knew how to do it. If somebody had stopped and said, oh, can you just teach a bit as to how to look after this stuff and work the country, just think of the grief that could have been avoided. And so... If you're feeling like a bit of a nong for being part of a society that didn't pay attention, just sit with it for a moment. Say, okay, fair enough. Good call. Now let's move on. As one of the quotes that stuck out that Barack Obama said, and I'd like to say I was reading his book, I was, I was you know, deep into this essay, and it was from the Last Dance documentary about Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Right. But he said, around when Michael Jordan spoke up, he said, you know, and I think this relates to Australia, America's really quick to adopt a Michael Jordan, a Barack Obama and Oprah Winfrey on the basis that they are very quiet about the social justice issues that come with their people. And I I think there's very similar here to Australia because you see the Aboriginal people that, you know, some of the listeners might uh, appreciate, like an Ash Barty or or a Jess Mowboy, for example. But then you put someone out there like Adam Goods or Latrell Mitchell, like some of these footballers that are quite vocal about the social justice issue, then all of a sudden that relationship really changes. So I just think it's a massive insight into the psychology and just some of that yeah, advice you're giving around that truth just needs to be told as that first step. And, and look, if people get angry, I mean, fair enough too, in a lot of cases, you know, if you think what people have been through, look. I, but I also think, I mean, you take, I mean, one of the people I really love, I mean, there's so many people I love their contribution, Marcia Langton, right? Now, she's no shrinking violet. If anybody gets between Marcia and a good idea, she will let you know exactly what she's thinking. And yet there are a few people with greater passion and um, sensitivity and integrity and compassion also, I think, than Marcia can be. Uh, but she doesn't let everybody off the hook. But it's such a big heart that's behind it. And there's, you know, I, I mean, I, I've just picked her out of a number of people who are the leaders who've sort of shone a light on things. And it's just kind of a great gift to be able to do it. So, yeah, I would never want the angry people to stop being angry or to pretend that there isn't great wrong that needs to be addressed. But I think it's the balance. And, it's, and when that's being expressed, it's then about saying, well, okay, well, we're we're really in it for the long term, you know, like let's hope for another 10,000 years or so we're all here together building a wonderful nation which recognises its heritage and builds upon it. That's great. A really good response to that. Yeah, that extra level because I find most people will say, 
you know, you shouldn't be angry about it. Wake up to yourself, but it's okay to process that emotion. And really, do people say you shouldn't be angry? God, I tell you what. Imagine, I mean, all they have to do is think about if you come from anybody who's from, say, the English stock. Imagine if the Romans had come in and wiped out your stuff, or when the Normans turned up in 1066. People were pretty annoyed for a couple of hundred years, at least after that. So there's no reason to think this mob shouldn't be pretty annoyed a couple of hundred years either. <laughs> great, great insight. Looking at from an organisational point of view, what are some of the things that organisations should consider when they're creating just any kind of mechanism targeted at First Nations people, whether it's a simple financial service product or whether it's a, an employment plan or to you know recruit more Indigenous people into their organisation? What, what's some of the mechanisms that organisations need to look at first to, to make sure they get that right? There's a couple of things. Firstly, seek people out and listen. Don't think you know what's good for them, but let them tell you because they'll give you the insights around what will constitute, as I said, cultural legitimacy around what you make and do. Second thing, understand that the world of Indigenous governance and you know, politics and all the rest that go with it is really, really complicated because it's not like there's any kind of national, individual, state or regional who gets really to speak for everybody. A lot of people don't understand that authority in these communities is located towards country and whoever speaks for country has ultimate authority for that so you've got to be ready for a bit of a messy conversation because there's not going to be just one person who can give you the answer you want even if they're coordinating there's always going to be somewhere down on the ground he says actually no you're talking about my country you can't speak for it you've got to involve with me so don't expect it to be really neat and organized around some kind of technical model, because that's just not the way mobs are operating. It's, it's a completely different way of understanding. And then I think if you do those two things, if you're wanting to contact, listen, and get cultural legitimacy in the way you operate, and you're willing to embrace them, what seems messy, it's actually quite organised, but this diffuse nature of authority, then I reckon you're already a fair way down the track in terms of whatever you come up with, it's going to be something that really resonates. And even approaching it in that way will have done some good before you even enact any plan. How does an organisation learn that or appreciate some of that stuff? Say they're, they're really far removed from Indigenous culture, but they're, you know, they've really got a bit of a flame to, to do well in this space. Well, they've probably got to listen to people like this podcast, <laughs> to, 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 to be honest, because you don't, it's not obvious. I mean, most people who grow up in, you know, the kind of mainstream society, if I can call it that, are used to different structures. Like there's councils and governments and then there's a prime minister and the prime minister's in charge and the prime minister gets to speak for, for Australia. Actually, what you're seeing at the moment with COVID raging around us is <laughs> federation operating like Indigenous mob. You know, the states are saying, oh, no, no, Scott Morrison, Prime Minister, you can't speak for us. You know, you don't speak for our bit of country. Brilliant. And it's 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 actually like a lot of people in in the First Nations be saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's that that Gladys Berejiklian. Well, they're they're speaking for their country." Well, you've got to imagine that, despite the fact that it's a bit of an aberration, uh, replicated in this vast patchwork of communities who are still there, dotted around this nation. Even even if people 
don't happen to be living on their land, uh, no matter how remote they might seem, they still have some authority around that particular bit of country because it defines the nature of their existence. You know, you can you can discover this. It's not obvious, but once you discover it, it's like a key, and you say, okay, well, I can understand that. It makes perfect sense once you get a, a handle on it. And I just think it's a, it's probably a job of people like you and and others to make it as accessible, make it as obvious as possible, so that organisations are not led by their good intentions to make things worse because they never really understood the dynamics of what they were dealing with. That is some of the best insight I've seen into Indigenous culture, just that politics and that decision-making challenges. Uh, and, and you really don't get that unless you get to, I guess, that cultural competency level where, you, where you've been out in community and no doubt you've probably been to the community meetings uh, where we, we have our own politics in place and some of the... Yeah. decisions are being made. Uh, I could be way more detailed and describe some experiences, but I'll let yeah, you know. Yeah, I bet you can. First hand uh, as well. But well, even, even other things, like a lot of uh, people don't understand the importance of silence. I mean, I spent plenty of time in community sitting around not saying anything, not looking, just waiting until the right moment comes. And Again, if you come from this kind of hustle-bustle society where everything has to be done and you say, okay, we're setting the time, meeting's going to go now, it's going to finish, boom, 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 they can't quite get a grip of the fact that actually for some people that's not the way you do stuff. You, you sit respectfully waiting and you don't necessarily even get to anything on the first meeting because partly it's about establishing a relationship rather than a transaction. So I, mean, I don't know, if you, you must have had this experience where you you walk into a place for the first time and it's all polite but nothing happens and then come back the next time and they sort of know who you are and then maybe they have a bit more of a yarn and then eventually you have a proper conversation. But it's only after you've established some kind of position of being present rather than just blowing in because you've got a title or a, an appointment or whatever. Um, but I think you know, this is really exciting. I mean, all of this is you can learn it, you can live it, it's just you've got to be open to it. In a previous job, when we had Indigenous engagement, you're right, because your, your first time you go out, you get no business done. Even the second or third time, you get very little business done. And we uh, call it the cups of tea measurement. How many cups of tea you had to have before you uh, yeah, before you get any business done? And if you're familiar, being, yeah. I was often younger than most of the fellows that I'd go out and service. So as soon as they found out that I was a black fellow, particularly the ones this one time where I, was, I grew up in a similar area as these aunties, I went from a from a worker employee consulting to a hospitality worker instantly. The number of cup of tea orders that I got and I had to fix up for everyone before we even spoke about doing any kind of business. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. And then you get the you'll get the phone call out of the blue. Somebody needs something that they reckon you can do and you can't tell whether you're being humbugged or whether or not it's a genuine thing. So you sort of work your way through all of that. And, that, and that's because once you're in, you're in. I mean, it's a kind of, a, as I say, it's not, a lot of businesses, I think, have got to understand if you approach community and reconciliation as a series of transactions, which is another way of thinking of ticking the boxes or whatever, where you're doing deals, yeah, there'll be people who'll play that game, but that's not really going to give you the kind of value that you're really after. If, on the other hand, you're prepared to accept that a relationship comes with reciprocal rights and obligations then you're much closer to getting something that's going to work. But you've got to set yourself up to be prepared for that, prepared for delays, prepared for things not going quite right, prepared not always to understand why things are not going right, 
but let that relationship dictate things and it'll it'll sort of flex a little bit until it settles down into appropriate balance. Is that something you think senior leaders should do to get that next level experience instead of just the community engagement staff going out to the local community yeah. center or events? You think senior executives go out into the red dirt in the case where, you know, you're up in the north end or just even the concrete out in sort of Redfern La Perouse sort of area. Or Western Sydney or tons of places where big loads of mob around. Look, yes, I think they should, and also with a sense of humility because often they're going to be encountering some incredibly smart people who operate at multiple levels and with a depth. I mean, you'd know from your own background, the world inside Indigenous communities is a highly complex and sophisticated environment. I mean, people spend literally a whole lifetime of compulsory education just coming to terms with how all of the subtleties. It's it's not something that you you master in a moment. You can't just read a book. It is genuinely lifelong learning, even for people who are born into it. So if you're a CEO of a company, you've got to be quite humble because you will walk into that world and all the things you think you're really good at don't actually matter that much within that environment. They don't really care about the things you're doing, yet they will be interested in a relationship if you're open to it. But that takes, as we've said, time. It takes that element of humility. But I also think, and this is the more interesting thing, that the model for relationship between a corporation and a society is actually going to become more like the one that you might want through true reconciliation. A bit like, you know, if only we'd learned from a local mob about how to manage the bush, there wouldn't be these terrible fires. Well, you look at it at the moment. What are most businesses treated like in society? They're treated as if they're a parasite in the body politic. But, you know, it's mutually beneficial. There's a symbiotic relationship. But the business lives within it. So you hear these concepts like license to operate or social license as if, the corporation doesn't really belong. So let's imagine something completely different. Imagine now that you are not a parasite living inside the body, but you are part of it. You're like a heart or a lung or something. So you've got to be healthy for the body and the body's got to be healthy for you. And so if you're a business in a community where you're now looking at it as I said before, not as a matter of transactions where you pay your license fee to be able to be there, but a relationship where you're delivering real value, then that's a very powerful model. And I think the connection with Indigenous communities in Australia that you can develop within reconciliation action plans that are well put together, it models that. It's got that sense of relationship. So if you're the big boss, think about going there. You're not now just the person who pays the rent. You're part of this thing you spend some time, you understand you've got things to learn from people who you might be very surprised to find what they can teach you. And if you do that, then I think you get much greater depth well beyond the transactional limits that sometimes inform reconciliation action plans. It's been an incredibly insightful conversation. Really enjoyed it. Just as sort of a last point or, or a summary, if there's someone who's, I guess, non-Indigenous in this space, but their responsibilities around Indigenous affairs, Aboriginal servicing, or they want to move into that space, what was a bit of a summary of today's conversation of how they can do that more meaningfully and, and remove that, I guess, limiting belief that you don't have to be Indigenous to have impact in this space. You can actually have significant impact without being Aboriginal. Well, I could only sort of give you what I've 
haven't found. I would find a community that you've got some kind of reason to be dealing with. And also, don't just turn up expecting everybody to drop what they're doing and say, oh, great, hey, Bungie, yeah, come on in, you know, thank you. I mean, these people are sick to death of having people turn up wanting to be looked after by, by things. So find someone where you're going to go, where there's some reason, where you can add some value to. Turn up with a bit of time on your hands, prepared not just to have a single hit and think that that's going to be the case because relationships don't develop like that. And the most important thing of all is just treat people from First Nations like people you'd treat from anyone else. That The community, the mobs, they've got a fair and equal distribution of saints, sinners, because you're Indigenous doesn't mean you're going to always be fantastic and this you're going to get bad days, bad tempers. You're going to have other things too. We're all basically human beings. We're all born under the same sky. We all have the same thing. Our children are born. We laugh. We cry. And if you're just willing to treat people as people, then that's the basis on which I think First Nations people will embrace you, whatever your particular cultural or genetic background. That's been incredibly insightful. Thanks for jumping on the podcast and the conversation. If people are looking to continue the conversation or have points that they want to chat to you about, is there a place you can go to sort of reach out or connect with you? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's been always great to have a chat like this. People actually understand this, this area as you do. If people are interested, I can be contacted via the Ethics Centre where it's, it's the website, you know, www.ethics.org.au. But I'm not probably the best person to start with anyway. I mean, probably someone like you would be better to talk to or somebody in a local community, you know, whether it's land council in your area or something like that and and just pick up the phone or wander along. And as I say, be patient because they've got busy people with lots of demands, but eventually someone will have a yarn and you'll be much better for it. Absolutely. And uh, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Phil.